I don't think the current partnership model at firms are necessarily set up for success. Maybe you say like, oh, you know, this isn't a hot take, but then you look at the way firms are set up and it still hasn't truly deviated. So so it seems like most of the industry still agrees with this one approach. And what I mean by that is everyone knows that companies take a village to succeed. And yet if you talk to any VC, VC today is still very much a lone wolf sport. Like solo partners still have to win deals and support their portfolio companies majority by themselves. And obviously this is against a backdrop of like, you know, from branding and resources. But VC is still very much more like tennis than, you know, like basketball. There's the sourcing aspect, right? Like how do we find amazing companies? And then there's the second part, which is once you found amazing companies and a founder, how do you convince them that you are the right partner for Mm -hmm. them? So let's spend some time on the sourcing piece first. I think the market, as we just talked about, has fundamentally changed in the last few decades. And so even if you have this amazing brand or portfolio and you can build top of funnel, you should not be reactive and waiting for top of funnel to come to you. You really, really need to be out there and hustling and finding the best companies. And that can't come from one source, right? Maybe it comes from your network. Maybe it comes from doing reading. Maybe it comes from following all the top projects in GitHub. Whatever it is, you need to have multiple sources for getting access to the individuals and the categories that you care about. I think that relying on network and brand, as I mentioned, is just too reactive. Welcome back to the Generation Hustle podcast. This is your host, Amin. Season four of our VC series continues, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Grace Ka, who is a principal at the renowned Bay Area firm Menlo Ventures. Being exposed to the world of tech early on, she eventually developed that passion, becoming an investor and backing companies like Pinecone, Orb, and Matic. Throughout this episode, you will learn about Grace's approach to sourcing and building relationships, why she believes that the current VC partnership model is broken, and shares a framework from Elon Frank, who's VP of product at Airtable on how to be enterprise ready. Grace also details her passion towards supporting diverse causes and why she feels it's important. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone. This is season four of our BC series. Today, we have Grace from Menlo Ventures. What's up? Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for making this happen. We have pretty interesting conversation ahead. We always start off with learning about who Grace is and her pathway into tech and the world of investing. So I'd love to ask you and learn more about what your experiences were first that led you down the path of tech and then eventually to Menlo Ventures? Yeah, of course. Happy to answer that question. So when I think about my career, it's really been an amalgamation of many different experiences, banking, big tech, consulting. I think the question really is, you know, where did it all begin and how did all those experiences compile on top of each other in order to lead to venture investing in Menlo? And for me, the genesis point was really growing up with a startup founder. Growing up, my dad was a robotics founder. He utilized robotics for offshore drilling. That's why I grew up in Houston, Texas, the center of oil and gas. Growing up, I saw that company really rise. And then that company also fall in the 2008 recession when oil prices crashed. And so I think if you were to draw a line from that point onward to where I am now, you'll see a pattern of someone who's always advised companies, 
whether it's public companies, whether it's, you know, small startups or companies at major transition points like IPOs, M&As. Uh, I started my career investment banking and finance. Um, and that really provided me like the backbone of what basics we do as investors, right? Which is like analyze and try to understand the financial profiles and execution of companies. But it was really operating and consulting with big tech companies that really taught me the macros, what startups and investment opportunities was interesting. Those were probably some of my favorite years working with teams on solving mission critical problems. And then with those two things combined, you have what you need to really be a, you know, VC investor. Got it. And so you mentioned one thing there. You grew up in Texas. Now I think you live in New York or is it SF? I live in SF. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I'd love to ask you maybe the differences between growing up, I say more in a traditional, say blue collar area versus now completely like, I say it's mostly tech and uh, SF. What kind of cultural difference do, do you see now? And do you see your, yourself potentially moving out in SF, going back home because Texas is becoming a tech hub now? Yeah. Um, I've worked in all three. So I, you know, I was born in Shanghai. I grew up in Houston. I've worked for my adult career in both San Francisco and New York. And uh, I can tell you the differences between all of them. So growing up in Katy, Texas, I mean, it was super rural when I moved there. There was no access to tech. The dominant industry was oil and gas. And um, I think the I was lucky to grow up with an entrepreneur that was using innovation in that specific vertical. But outside of that, there was like no exposure to tech. And so I knew from like the moment that I started my adult career, I really wanted to kind of escape that bubble and really be where innovation was. And that's when I made the move to San Francisco. Um, the move to New York was really interesting. And I made the move specifically to work with the first venture firm I ever worked with, uh, Jim Robinson at RRE Ventures. And I can tell you the differences between tech culture then in New York versus tech culture in San Francisco. So when I joined RRE, this was around 2017, I would say it was an emerging ecosystem that was growing more robust over time. Like we would hear about deals, but it was never at the pace or velocity that you really see in San Francisco. And most of the time, like where we really shined as firms is around the New York ecosystem, right? Like there was so much consumer D2C then. And what was interesting then is firms were native to New York and firms were also more bifurcated by stage. Like it was so clear that Bold Star and Lear Hippo and, you know, um, Workbench were doing Seeds and then, you know, RRE or USB were doing A's and then there were different firms that were doing B's. Got it. Uh, fast forward, moving to SF, just the clip and uh, the pace of investments is totally a match. It's it's kind of interesting. You're, you feel like you're put on an accelerator. Things just happen so fast here at a different velocity. And I think things are obviously changing. Other geos are becoming extremely important. I mean, we saw the uh, and all those announcements of venture firms opening New York offices, right? Like, traditionally SF native firms that now view New York as another major hub. And I'm also seeing that reflected in founding teams. Like one founder lives in San Francisco, one founder lives in New York. We're seeing the rise of a lot of developer tooling off the backs of, you know, MongoDB, Datadog. There's more data companies in New York. New York is becoming a very vibrant ecosystem. Um, and, you know, I, I think 
this continues to be the case, like even with AI becoming a hub in San Francisco, one of our portfolios and the leading vector database in the space Pinecone, you know, Ito lives in New York. And so there's obviously other important geographies, but I think you're seeing more consensus that there's other cities that are matching, you know, SF and speed and velocity now. Yeah, no, really interesting take. And uh, hopefully we can kind of translate that some back into Canada. Uh, but I love what New York and obviously SF has been doing it forever. So talking about your role specifically as a VC, you mentioned your experience as an investment banker and some of the operating consulting experience. Uh, but what do you feel like, I say from an intangible standpoint, translates well, that's a, and that's enabling you to become a great VC. Um, we know the technical skills that are typically required, but what are those intangibles that make a successful VC? Yeah. I mean, I shared a little bit about, you know, how I was born in Shanghai. I, I moved here to Houston. And so I don't think it's a tale that's net new to anyone. But at the foundation layer, that level of like grit, hustle, coming from nothing, carving a path for yourself when there is not one to begin with or anyone to believe with, believe in you is I think a story not you not unique to me. I think it's just like the story of immigrating. And so well, I think some of the VCs that I admire most, and I would say actually the majority of founders that I invest in come from a similar background. And so I just believe in the story of coming from nothing because it's what we invest in as VCs, right? Every day we spend time with some of the most amazingly intelligent people and they're all building something from nothing, literally something from scratch. So many of the companies I invested in sometimes have been pre-product, pre-revenue, two people in a WeWork. And it's really amazing to see that growth story from two to 50 to beyond. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think the, if you even look at like the tech ecosystem now, a lot of the CEOs have happened to become from immigrant backgrounds. Um, a lot of founders that had been successfully gone to IPO, similar cases, I think basically lacking resources and being very creative. I think that's great to have as a founder or a VC. Yeah. Um, and here's another question I have for you. So obviously the role of VC has become, I guess, on, on the forefront of something very popular. Um, and I feel like a lot of students these days feel like that's kind of a career path that they want to take. Uh, my personal opinion on this is like, you shouldn't become a VC out of school, mm -hmm. but I feel like you need a bit of experience and a requirement uh, to gain that knowledge of what makes a good investable profile. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm probably in agreement. I always say live your life out. When I first joined venture, I really thought to myself, wow, I never, I've never had a career where I talk about what I did before this one. And venture is just so much more fun, even if you join as a baby associate at a firm, when you have professional experiences that you can draw on to really help you determine you know, what are the right investments that I'm passionate about or what are the types of founders who I want to be spending time with? And I'll give you an example. I mean, I talk about how, you know, big tech operating consulting really gave me a macro understanding of what new investments were interesting. Those experiences made me really intimately familiar with the different departments at companies. Like I learned the different personas. I learned what was in their tool stack. I learned what their pain points were. I understand how they adopted innovation and how the culture of change happens and how that translated into investments at Menlo. You know, at Google and eBay, I worked with machine learning teams and data teams 
that led to investments in like EPO, which is doing next-gen AB experimentation, Pinecone, which I talked about. Um, at NetApp, I worked with all the go-to-market teams that led to investments in the modern go-to-market stack, like, you know, Vivin and pre-sales, Matic and CS. And then I, I obviously lived the finance persona. And so it was really familiar to me, the problem that Orb was sol solving and, you know, usage-based billing. Um, pricing and then Bretto, uh, which is trying to become a next-gen Anaplan. And so those experiences were so much richer for me and helping those founders were, was so much more interesting because of the experience I had before venture. Um, I will caveat and say um, one of my favorite colleagues did venture straight from undergrad, and he is probably one of the smartest investors I know. So there is not one size fits all, but that's still my personal opinion. Yeah, no, I think there are those kind of needle in the haystack individuals that obviously are able to be very successful right into the role. But in general, I think experience, obviously, because you're in a value add industry, uh, money itself is a commodity. So make sure you know how to add value here. Um, so on that topic, what is one view that you have on the world of VC that your peers generally tend to disagree with? Yeah, I so I would say the one view I have is I don't think the current partnership model at firms are necessarily set up for success. Maybe you say like, oh, you know, this isn't a hot take, but then you look at the way firms are set up and it still hasn't truly deviated. So so it seems like most of the st industry still agrees with this one approach. And what I mean by that is everyone knows that companies take a village to succeed. And yet if you talk to any VC, VC today is still very much a lone wolf sport. Like solo partners still have to win deals and support their portfolio companies, majority by themselves. And obviously this is against a backdrop of like, you know, from branding and resources. But VC is still very much more like tennis than, you know, like basketball. And I've always wondered why that is, right? You know, because I actually think firms uh, would be more interesting and hyper-efficient if partnerships approached deals end-to-end -end together and had hyper-specialization. And what I mean by that is like, okay, like this group in the firm focuses on sourcing in like X area. This firm does like, you know, this part does financial analysis and diligence. This, this part is like recruiting and talent. I'm kind of making this up, but like, I think you could build a venture firm from the ground up with these specific personas and skills in mind that have like hyper-specialization in X. Because I think in venture, we sometimes over-rotate on like, what is the hot VC archetype? Last, like yesterday, it was someone with, you know, a finance degree from banking and, you know, you had an MBA. Now it's like some blanket operating experience. In reality, like there is no one winning persona. You actually need all of them to build a world-class form. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons I decided to join Menlo and I'm still really excited to be part of this team. Like, our logo is all in and we truly win and lose deals as a partnership. I think it's like a very different model. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting take because uh, I feel like, yeah, to your point, I, I love the analogy of like the individual sport of tennis uh, versus like a team sport of basketball. I think yeah. there are very, uh, there's a lot of cases and I'm even kind of looking at the whole transition of so many solo GPs uh, coming to fruition and it's just, them just investing on their own. Um, yeah. There's a lot of those cases. I, I love the take. And I think that even small advantage that you can have uh, can create a huge compounding result from the end. So um, that's awesome to see. 
Okay, so let's move into the actual world of investing and building relationships. So we just talked about partnerships as a whole. Yeah. But I feel like the role of a VC is obviously one, to invest, to build relationships, but also to mentor and help your founders. So could you maybe help us understand maybe how the role of VC has evolved over the recent years? And maybe how do you see it evolving further And I guess that's a good segue from what you kind of just mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah. VC has evolved in a couple of ways in recent years, but the most obvious one is that it became an asset class that has, you know, proliferated for lack of a better word. I mean, I don't think founders in recent memory have had better access to capital and resources from the venture uh, firms than they ever had before. And what that's led to, I think, is, as I talked about, this is why this is why I believe the partnership model that I do is that as capital becomes commoditized, VCs are starting to specialize. And so you're starting to see this like hyper specialization, uh, sometimes at the firm level, right? Like you see some firms that are all in on specific sectors. But then even within the multi-stage funds like Menlo, you're seeing hyper specialization in like functions in areas that you can help founders or, you know, specific sectors that you as a partner spend time on. And that's really needed, right? Because if capital is now the commodity, like what do you bring to the table as value add investor? And so it's completely different. If you talk to some of the older partners at Menlo, you know, 20 years ago when they joined, you know, venture investing in San Francisco, um, firms sometimes didn't have enough money. So you'd have all these like party rounds and it was more collaborative and, you know, everybody could help and be part of a round. And now that's just not the case anymore, right? You're really fighting for allocation and ownership in the primary relationship with founders. And you really have to prove why you deserve to work with the founders that you do. And it's led to a completely different motion than what was before. I think before venture could be more academic and take you know, a longer term uh, and longer time horizon before an investment. And now I think, you know, it's obviously very, very much changed. I think in a lot of ways, it, it's become very much a sales role in a lot of yeah. that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm honestly interested how this time and market and tech will change uh, the foundation of ventures we know it today, because it could reverse, right? Um, and so I'm curious what the next year in the next couple of years will will and how that will impact the industry. One thing I'd love to maybe double down from that aspect is could you help us understand fund math and dynamics as to why a fund might need a certain portion of allocation and or ownership percentage? Um, let's just say it's a five hundred million dollar fund or a billion dollar fund. Um, there are certain dynamics that need to take place in order for the fund to have an incentive to actually invest. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just driven off of like, you know, power law. We're investing in businesses where, I mean, if you are venture stage, it means you're investing with companies really, really early on. And so it's just simple math of saying, okay, if we make like a couple of investments, but really only one or two are going to be outsized returns, and then the rest of them for, you know, whatever reason are not able to scale or be successful or know, have an exit that um, will be substantial enough. VCs are just looking for investments that have the outsized potential to 
return the fund and then be a multiple on top of the fund. Sure. And obviously you only have a couple of levers in order to maximize return. Either you maximize the exit value or you maximize the ownership, right? And so if you know that you are going to be spending the same amount of time across your portfolio companies, why not maximize that initial lever from the get-go, right? Which is the ownership dynamic. Obviously we've seen in, in many, um, like in, in many deals in recent years, that ownership target has like decreased, but that is just a function of the competitive environment. Yeah. Then, right. So what used to be standard is like, you know, I really want to aim for 20%. Uh, now that's kind of fallen off to, you know, sometimes 15%, sometimes lower if it's an ultra competitive deal. Uh, I think those numbers will change in this environment just because obviously we're all seeing the impact uh, impact in tech. But um, yeah, it's really a function of that. Got it. And so how are you able to source great companies? Like what's the framework that you use? Typically, uh, I know some venture capitalists would kind of use their profile or brand as a way to create a lead funnel because yeah. I don't know, they're great on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. They have a huge blog. Um, so what makes Grace slash Menlo someone, a founder wants to partner? Yeah. So let's kind of decouple that because I actually feel like that's two questions in one. There's the sourcing aspect, right? Like how do we find amazing companies? And then there's the second part, which is once you found amazing companies and a founder, how do you convince them that you are the right partner for mm -hmm. them? So let's spend some time on the sourcing piece first. I think the market, as we just talked about, has fundamentally changed in the last few decades. And so even if you have this amazing brand or portfolio and you can build top of funnel, you should not be reactive and waiting for top of funnel to come to you. You really, really need to be out there and hustling and finding the best companies. And that can't come from one source, right? Maybe it comes from your network. Maybe it comes from doing reading. Maybe it comes from following all the top projects in GitHub. Right. Whatever it is, you need to have multiple sources for getting access to the individuals and the categories that you care about. I think that relying on network and brand, as I mentioned, is just too reactive. And so what I do at Menlo is I know the stages that I invest in. I will monitor the stage one stage before mine because okay. for me, you know, a lot of investors today talk about specialization in sectors being really thesis driven. But that for me doesn't mean like you sit in a box and you try to come up with amazing thesis areas on your own. Right. If that was the case, I'd be, you know, I'd be an entrepreneur. What, what that means for me is I'm monitoring the stage before mine and I'm starting to see what amazing talent is start to cluster in certain areas, in certain categories. Got and it. then I say to myself, is that an area I want to spend time on for myself? Is that, a, is that a area that Menlo should be spending time on? And if, if the answer is yes, because, you know, we have a personal passion from our previous experience or we think it's a valuable enough sector, we will go really, really deep and we will use our network to look at companies and products and come with that really rich experience on where and how we should invest. So much so by the time usually that we get to founders, we are super opinionated and we say, we know you're the best product. We actually are pretty confident that you are the team that we want to work with and here is why and here's how we we can partner and um i don't know if you have a following question but we can talk about you know what what that looks like in convincing them that you know 
they should partner with us. Yeah. And so let's talk about that. So um, how would you convince a founder? Let's just say, uh, hypothetically, it's a very competitive round. Um, it's a great founder, a great product, whatever it is. How do you convince them to be uh, you two to partner in that instance? Because you source them. Now you feel like you have a great match. You have a great skill set. How do you convince that founder saying, yeah, this is the right relationship that you should be working? Yeah. So you used a very interesting word. And so if they're raising now and it's competitive, I think we kind of messed up in a lot of ways, meaning we didn't do our mm -hmm. job in full success because the model that I just explained to you on the sourcing front yeah. is being very proactive and uh, honest in what are the next areas that you want to spend a, a substantial amount of time thinking about and getting to founders early, right? And so if you're relying on founders to one raise and two for the information arbitrage to kind of disappear in market, then I already think that you're you're not actually doing the job that we intended to do, which is getting to companies early and forming theses around areas before anyone else is. So that's like that's like the preferred model, right? Yeah. And so the preferred model is getting to companies early showing founders that you have like outsized conviction because of X, Y, and Z time that you spend in the space. And the reason that they would choose to partner, you know, with Menlo or with me is because, I mean, we talked a little bit about like the all-in partnership model. And so at Menlo, the way that we come to founders is, sure, there is like one partner that will be the main point of contact for you. But with Menlo, you really get the full weight of the partnership we really win and lose deals together. And so you do not feel like there's a single point of failure or a single point of contact when you partner with us. You get all of us and you get all of the rich different personas that will help you build a company. You get the village that we talked about, right? Um, and then specifically with me, I think if you were to ask, you know, anyone at Menlo or anyone that I've worked with, you know, like why Grace, I would say, you know, my superpower is that, you know, I'm probably the best person or the top one or two people that you would partner with that can get you to X persona at any company like the fastest. And so like my model is never to pretend that I know everything, right? Yeah. That's actually impossible. And that's right. why we talked about the village partnership model that we talked about before. But I know that not only can I get you access to the capital and obviously the legacy of Menlo, I can get you to the right proprietary knowledge at unmatched speed. So if, for instance, you're creating a product that is multi-stakeholder and has the same collaboration workflow like Figma, I can get you to the CPU at Figma. If you're building an API for strategy, let me introduce you to the early PMs at Plaid or the first go-to-market hire at, at Stripe. If you're building customer success uh, at a company that started with a PLG motion, let me introduce you to the head of CS at Notion. And so that network, uh, that branding that Menlo and I'm able to build and provide for founders is kind of unmatched. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely value add. So as a founder, if I was one, that would be something I'd look for. How do I grow? How do I scale? How do I develop my product? Uh, there are smarter individuals out there that can help us kind of get to the next stage in the roadmap. Uh, yeah. And hey, you utilize your VC or utilize your network wherever possible. Yeah. So that's amazing. But, and the last thing I would just add is you know, obviously this business can feel very transactional mm -hmm. and that, that I feel like is a failure mode. And so with all, with all the investments that we've made and all the founders that I partner with, 
it's really from a place of friendship, actually, because, you know, these are areas that I'm excited about. And obviously you and I both hope that there's going to be some amazing return. But I think in all the founders that I partner with, I tell them, I have so much conviction in you and I have so much conviction in wanting to work with you. I'm just honestly excited to be on the journey and I would be honored to be on this journey with you regardless of what happens at the end. And once you have that feeling and once founders have that trust that that's the baseline of the relationship, that's ultimately what convinced them to choose you as their partner. Yeah. And so let's maybe double down on that. Um, So we know venture capitalists wield kind of influence over the startups that they typically invest in, whether it's they're holding a board seat or their lead investor, whatever that dynamic exists. How do you kind of navigate that power dynamic responsibility in making sure that relationship is fruitful? I know you alluded to some of that earlier, um, but I think there is a good kind of balance that you have to kind of find or struggle um, in order to make both individual parties incentivized and successful. Yeah. For me, I don't think that you establish that power dynamic at all, right? And so, you know, obviously there is a transaction that occurs where we invest money for, you know, a percentage ownership in a company. But at the end of the day, where I invest, I mean, again, I talked about companies that I invested pre-revenue, pre-product. There is 100% of the time where if there is not this founder at my stage where I'm investing, there is no company. And so there is never this power dynamic where I feel like I'm, you know, yielding some sort of influence over them. It's really born from a place of saying, uh, you are the founder. You are what makes this company special. You are the reason this company even exists. And so how in service of you can I make sure that you are the most successful and this company has the best probability of succeeding? And so I just never even see that as kind of a power dynamic that comes up. Got it. Another reason to partner with Grace if uh, possible, right? So keeping humble, that's a, that's a great quality to have. Uh, okay. So I also had the chance to read one of your blog posts and I found it pretty interesting. Uh, specifically, you wrote about this idea of enterprise readiness. Uh, and I personally feel having some experience with this, um, enterprise is pretty hard to be successful in, uh, given yeah. the complications and kind of um, you know, the sales roadmap, all that kind of stuff that comes with it. So could you maybe first help us understand how you define an enterprise level product or solution? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good place to start. Um, and before we even double click into that, I do not want to take credit, full credit for that article. That article, uh, was born from a really interesting conversation an event that I held with Elon Frank, who is a masterclass in making software enterprise ready. Uh, So a little bit about him. Um, He is currently the VP of product at Airtable. He came from leading the enterprise product team at Slack. He has spent, you know, two decades in productivity software. He is like the guru in how do you hyperscale uh, your product to be performant for the enterprise. Uh, So let's talk about what enterprise ready means. Enterprise ready means that you are starting to be able to handle users and organizations of sizes where you have thousands and sometimes millions of users. And obviously, if you're a baby startup or you're starting to scale, 
there is going to be hopefully a point where you hit that threshold and crossing uh, that thousand user mark per company or maybe that million you know, user mark per company. And there are specific things that we talked about in that article that you need to make sure that you are thinking about and testing for and building in your product in order to be of that scale. Got it. And so let's actually go into some of the criteria. You mentioned five key criteria, in your opinion, that make a company enterprise ready. So walk us through that and explain why each is so important. Yeah. So the five that, you know, Elon and I outline in that essay um, are, uh, you know, scale, security, compliance, administration, and usability. So let's talk through all five of them. Um, let me start first by saying one thing that Elon has always shared with me and the product leaders that he works with is a lot of companies think of enterprise readiness as this like one single checkbox that they need to like track and be done with. And it's not a one and done, right? That's why there's these five different levers that you can start to incorporate at different times. You don't need to do all of them at once. And so let's let's go through them. Scale. We talked about this a little bit. How do you ensure um, that your software is as performant for 100 people as, as it will be for a thousand or, you know, for a million or more? And so you need to actually properly test for that. And I think in the article, Elon and I talk about how at Slack, they didn't properly test for that. And so they had this instant when they were onboarding Uber and they weren't ready for Uber's like 5,000 users. And that had this like residual effect where even though they obviously fixed, retrofitted that, yeah. uh, for a long time after the Uber incident, they had a hard time convincing enterprises of a certain scale that they were ready and performant for like the X number thousand plus users yeah. because of that Uber incident. And um, at Airtable, Elon mentioned when he first joined, the product could only handle like 25,000 rows or something. And uh, like beginning of this year or, or when we had that conversation released the article, they had just released, I think it was like 100,000 rows. He wants to get them to a million and you million. can see why, mm -hmm. right? So that's scale. The second part is security. And so this is like, uh, can be bifurcated in a couple of ways. So obviously there's a base level of security that you need to provide for 100 or 200 users. This is like SSO, two-factor authentication. Then there's like a complete level of security that you need to provide once you go into like public markets or you start to provide, uh, you know, product to companies that have thousand plus users. This is like skim for provisioning, deprovisioning users from your software. This is like enterprise key management for encryption, decryption. There's like audit logging. And so there's like an entire spectrum of security. And so back to my earlier comment, like you can start to add in these things on over time. It doesn't need to be like a one or done. Uh, the third thing we talked about was compliance. So compliance actually um, is to help you open up new markets, right? So like most startups that we work with, uh, you know, work with tech companies, they don't have these like regulations or, you know, compliance features that they need. Once you start to expand overseas or you want to sell to financial services or public companies or go international, you, not, you, you need to start to add stuff like, you know, e-discovery or um, you need to prove like data loss prevention. So that really falls under compliance. Um, and then the last two, administration, that really benefits like only a few core users. 
Uh, so this is stuff like, um, you know, logging. This is stuff like uh, usage analytics. And so only like a few core people will be looking at this at a, as a firm. And so Elon's take is like, push that debt, like push that on your product roadmap as like far as you can, because it doesn't really benefit the organization as a whole. And the last piece is usability. And I just want to clarify and say, this does not mean like usability of the overall product. This means usability for a large enterprise. And so there are specific functions that you need to build in your product that uh, will help certain uh, large user bases. So this could be like, hey, if you have an extremely large user base, how would a user onboard onto a specific team workspace? Or Got how it. do they search for things at scale or share content at scale? It's not about like overall usability of the product. And so, yeah, those are those are the five key things that we talk about. Yeah, very detailed. Thank you so much for that. I feel like if I had access to that blog a couple of years earlier when I was at my first startup, uh, funny story, we, we were selling, uh, so it was a cybersecurity company. We were selling it to uh, data centers as being kind of their infrastructure tool. Yeah. Um, we're, we had one of the largest uh, social media companies out there. And uh, let's just say like the first like five, six months was an incredible failure because uh, we couldn't get up to the security standards that they requested uh, for their data centers. Again, they have so many privacy rules in the public and all that stuff. But to your point, just we were not even like at the point where compliant, uh, the product wasn't really usable on their end. I didn't really match the scale. Uh, yeah. And so it took another six months of development time to make sure we wow. fix and address that. So ultimately we, we were able to close the deal, but they were nice to us, I guess. But, um, you know, it took 12 months to close that one deal. So I guess, uh, to your point, it's, it's not an easy win anytime you're trying to do enterprise stuff. One thing I always love to add is kind of recent news, the topics people want to talk about. And one thing that really came up recently is threads. So uh, I know at the time of when I wrote these questions and they got up to 30 million, I think it's up to hundred million, but now it feels like nobody even uses it. I think the retention just fell off the map uh, in a yeah. couple of weeks. Um, so it's funny how everyone back, went back to Twitter. Any thoughts on maybe, you know, the platform as a whole and maybe how Meta is kind of trying to develop another competitor to Twitter um, and thoughts around why people are so ecstatic uh, when a new social media platform always comes out. Yeah, I think people are always just really happy when and, you know, aesthetic when new social platforms come out because it really just comes down. We're, we're just all human. We're just all trying to connect with each other. Right. And so these are different modalities in exploring that connection with Meta specifically. Yeah, it was pretty crazy that they crossed like a hundred million signups in five days. Like yeah. I think the previous uh like winner for that kind of platform milestone and getting to the fastest was like chat GPT. And now with threads, metas kind of dethroned them. Um I also saw the recent engagement numbers and uh, you know, obviously all the chatter on how you know hype has gone down. I think the specifics was like they like 20% decrease in active users, 50% decrease in time spent, something like that. I wouldn't count them out. You yeah. know, I think a lot of people are bearish, uh, but I'm actually pretty bullish. And uh, I think I read somewhere like 
you know, Instagram, which, you know, Threads is connected to obviously through the meta platform as like more than 2 billion users. And so if meta can only like meta only needs to capture like a small percentage of their existing distribution channel through through Insta, right, in order to be successful. I think the reason for like why they've seen engagement go down is because they're trying to create a different product than Twitter. And uh, so like a lot of people really like the real time aspect, news aspect of Twitter, being able to engage with anyone, anywhere in world news, political discourse, the customization of feeds. And I think threads tried to be like too different, which is like just take what the winning formula is and just iterate on that. And I think a really good historical par- parallel is like what they did with stories versus snap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, I still think they have an opportunity to retrofy, uh, you know, obviously the the recent lag in like users and engagement. But uh, yeah, I don't count them out. Yeah, I think it's just super early days. I think they'll just use this information as a way to validate and make the product better. Um, they're a super smart team at Meta, so I'm pretty sure they'll be successful at one way or the other. Um, and here's a fun little question here. Uh, who wins between uh, Elon and Zuck in that boxing fight or boxing match that they're proposing? Uh, I would have to say um, I'm I'm not that well informed on their both physical capabilities, but I want to say Zach just because I heard that he does a ton of jujitsu. So yeah, as long he does, as he yeah. can get Elon on the floor, I think he's good and the match should end quickly. <laughs> yeah, hopefully Elon goes to training. I think he's having a little rough spell right now, but it's all good. <laughs> I'm personally with Zach too. I think he has like some of the background. Uh, the MMA background to maybe help them out. Um, okay, next question here is around the other really popular topic, AI. It's kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. So I'd love your thoughts on, one, the potential risks that exist of having only a few companies dominating the space. So we think of it, obviously, there's Google, OpenAI, to an extent, Microsoft is kind of uh, involved in that. And then there's a few others, right? And so... What kind of potential hazards or externalities exist from this kind of concentration of players when it comes to AI? Yeah. Um, in full transparency, you know, Menlo, we we obviously invest heavily in AI. You know, we were in generation one companies like Clarify, Trera, and um, in generative AI, we're investors in companies like Anthropic, Pinecone, mm-hmm. and I. So we do a lot here. We spend a lot of time thinking about this. I would say in the age of AI, um, there's a saying like, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think if that responsibility is consolidated in a few closed platforms, there is the risk Mm -hmm. that there is not the right checks and balances in place. And so let's talk about what the risks are that we worry about. So one of them is like data security and privacy, right? Like you've seen all the news around ChatGPT, like, oh, employees at you know, X company are entering personal information or yeah. trades that they should not be into. That's a really real risk that we're thinking about. And there's mm-hmm. companies, obviously, that are building products that will mitigate that. The second is misinformation. On the small end, we obviously know that AI, AI models hallucinate, right? That's right. on the smaller end, mis- misinformation. On the other end, you know, you have to worry about deep fakes, which is anyone can create anything pretending to be anyone else or or something else. And that's pretty scary when you think about 
world order and the impact on things like democracy elections. Um, right. I think Sam Altman even testified uh, before the U.S. Senate specifically on the impacts of AI to right. elections. So that's something that's really scary. And obviously there's security companies that are thinking about that. I think um, both Intel and DARPA are coming out with tools that can do like deep fake detection or detect if someone's like created something synthetically with audio or video. Um, in that vein, cyber cyber attacks, right? Hackers yeah. have more power than they ever had and you know, co-generation or generation of things that will up-level their ability to target people. Um, and so you have this really interesting dynamic now that both the blue team and red team are supercharged. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is bias. Um, right. You can have automated poor decision-making. Uh, there was actually this really, really interesting book that was released in 2018 by this UCLA professor called um, Algorithms of Oppression. Okay. And it was actually even before, you know, the age of AI that we're in now, that was just exploring how uh, search engine algorithms could sometimes inherit bias from humans, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. there was examples in the book um, and the lecture she gave where if you Googled, for instance, like, you know, why are Asian? And then you didn't even fill it out in Google. It would just obviously auto-populate with oh, yeah, outstanding okay. things. Got and her. so some of those things would be like obviously stereotypes or, you know, um, you know, bringing up stereotypes that other people had ingrained in the platform. Another example is like if you had Googled image search three teenagers, like three white teenagers versus three black teenagers, the, the uh, former one would be like pretty innocuous, innocent. And then the latter one would be like three mugshots or something. Right. Yeah. And so you have to think about as you have more automated decision making, are we creating decision making that is aligned with the world order that we want to see? Or is it perpetuating biases that we inherently hold and want to rectify? Mm -hmm. And then the last one is obviously job displacement. You know, with the age of AI, there's obviously going to be a lot of um, jobs uh, that that maybe do not hold as much weight or need as much attention or time as they did before. And do you feel like we'll ever solve for the issue of bias when it comes to training models or kind of how we uh, build these algorithms out and stuff like that? I feel like it's very hard to do, but I think we can get better at it. But do you feel like we can ever eliminate that? Yeah, I, I don't think innovation is ever good or ever bad. It's always going to be on a sliding scale. And I think that's why it's all it's up to all of us in order to really educate ourselves on like, what are the limits of the technology? Like, where does it really fall apart? And how do we continue to improve and refine? I don't think it will ever be perfect. Yeah. But I think as long as you are aware of the limitations, you can have a better understanding and future of like where the technology can go. Got it. Cool. So one other thing I noticed about your profile is how invested you are in supporting diversity within tech. And so I actually wanted to talk about that specifically, you know, you promote women in tech, Asians in tech. I'd love to understand the story behind that. Yeah. I mean, I think I shared a little bit about this in the beginning, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I wasn't born in the States. I immigrated, um, my parents uh, came to the U.S. with only $20 in quarters. And I was uh, telling someone this the other week, and I was like, we just spent 
you know, like half of that amount on Phil's coffee, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And um, I think the reason for why I'm so passionate about diversity is because it's so ingrained in me as like a woman, a minority. And I, I don't even just view diversity as, you know, gender, um, you know, or race. I think it's so much multi- multifaceted from that. I think some of the things that we ignore is like socioeconomic yeah. diversity yeah. and tech and venture. And that's something I'm super, super passionate about. Um, there was this book that I read recently that I think Oprah Winfrey has released like one or two years ago. It's called What Happened to You? And she talks about like people who grew, grew up in like certain circumstances or mm. poverty, how um, sometimes in a lot of ways for them to get from A to B in terms of like success, they're not just like battling society, but sometimes they're battling their own um, like physical upbringing, right? right? Because your mind and your body is melt and made in a specific way that sometimes you're fighting your, yourself. And so for someone, for instance, who to come from like poverty to get to like a state school actually is like maybe like so much more meaningful or amazing or gritty than like, you know, someone who comes from a more normal supported background to get to like an elite school. And so I think the reason that I'm really passionate about that is because I think in a lot of ways in venture and tech, we still believe in like, uh, and I'm, I'm stealing this terminology from Jen Taylor, who's the CPO at Cloudflare, but she talks about like hiring um, as like, I think we need to evolve beyond this like rapper theory, which is we want the same credentials, but with like a different GUI. Mm-hmm. And you can't really solve for diversity if that's what you're looking for. Like if you're still looking for the Harvard grad, but you want them to look different, different. you're still hiring the same person. Yeah. True diversity is when you start to believe that there's different attributes or different winning attributes can come from people of different backgrounds. And the way that you measure their effort, as I mentioned before, like someone going from X to state school versus normal background to elite school, um, it's more meaningful for that former person. And I fundamentally believe that because I like live that a lot. Right. And so yeah, obviously it takes time to build diversity, but that's that's why I'm passionate about it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I think that there's so much complexities involved when you talk about diversity and kind of the role it plays within tech. And I definitely feel inclusion of different skill sets and stuff can definitely bring upon new innovation uh, and stuff like that. So if there's ever a way to be involved in anything you do, please do let me know. I'd love to support that as well. Uh, cool. Um, and so that's like the bulk of the podcast there. One thing I'm going to finish off with is like some personal questions that I'd love to kind of ask you. So the first one would be, what is the thing that you are most proud of in your life right now? And to add on to that, what is your biggest regret? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is like, we kind of touched on this before, just hustling, coming from nothing. Um, Like I didn't grow up in the easiest of circumstances. And so when you've been on that journey that mm-hmm. you know, you've know you been on, it's kind of an incredible feeling to look back and say like, wow, like I really, I really did this in a lot of ways. Like it took a lot of self-belief to get here. And, you know, obviously I had a ton of support from amazing mentors, but um, the ability to go on that journey um, pretty young is like pretty amazing. I think the deepest regret for me is not living life in the moment. And and I wonder if you suffer from this, but I think a lot of people who, you know, um, come from harder backgrounds or immigrated 
have this like chip on their shoulder and they only feel like their time is valuable if they're being productive. Yeah, yeah. And that is such an impossible and horrible standard to hold for yourself because it means that you never really live life. You're only measuring yourself based off your success. Yeah. And that ultimately is not, that's not what life is about, right? Yeah. Like life is about um, all the cheesy stuff that we normally don't talk about, which is like yeah. building community, like finding love, finding things that you're passionate about, being happy, being flawed as a person, mm-hmm. right? And accepting that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly because uh, actually, I was talking about this a couple of weeks back with a few friends on the same idea of uh, how we spend a lot of our time just trying to hustle and kind of grow our careers. And we forget about all the small things in life that add a lot of value to kind of who you are and your personality and uh, just in general fun. So uh, I'm the oldest of three siblings. Uh, we're immigrant family. So there's always sometimes that expectation of like the oldest kid having to, you know, do something. And so I yeah. just... I'm guilty I'm of that. This kid. Yeah, I, I feel guilty sometimes of like, okay, one, I have to set the example for my younger siblings. And then two, I feel like almost like a sense of ownership to try to be successful or try different things. Or if I'm just chilling, like some days I'm like, oh, I should have done that. Or should, like, I could be productive or reading or something along those lines. Right. So uh, I'm totally with you on that. I think I've uh, started realizing a bit more. I'm trying to decompress uh, as much yeah. as I can. Because uh, you can't consistently do this. Otherwise, it's just kind of kill. Uh, I guess in the future, I'll kill your motivation. Just kind of kill your personality as a whole uh, in general. I'm going to end off with a lightning round. So I have four quick questions for you. Uh, let me know when you're ready to answer. I'm ready. All right. Favorite book of all time? Uh, so my favorite book of all times, I think a lot of people won't know it, but it's called A Place for Us. Mm-hmm. It's by this new writer. Um, and it explores basically a Muslim American family growing up in California. And the story is based on three kids and how each of them individually try to balance like following tradition versus following the current tradition they live in. And so, yeah, I think it's really relevant for, you know, obviously my background and a bunch that's, of your That's really cool. I'll, I'll uh, definitely take a look at that. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would that be? Trevor Noah, hands down. Nice. Okay, cool. Really cool. Uh, the technology that you're most excited about that is not generative AI? Uh, AR, VR for sure. I mean, Apple just made their announcement. I'm still ready to get into ready player one mode. Okay. Okay. That's uh, that's the first time someone's answered that on the podcast. So we'll uh, be rooting for you on that. Uh, last question, most controversial of all. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? That's controversial. I'm like a thousand percent yes. That's okay. We talk. literally have like a 50 50 split on this answer. Like we've done over 100 uh, interviews and we have like super hard no's and then we're like super hard yes. So it's just like, it's one of those things where I, I love to have people debate on it. So it's just a fun time. Favorite topping? Uh, for me, uh, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to be plain Jane. I'm going to say pepperoni. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm plain Jane. I, I like my pizza's pretty simple. Like, I'm just going to be one of those guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, well, Grace, that's the podcast. There are any last words for the audience and perhaps a founder who's listening, how they can reach out to you at five? Yeah. Um, I always am an open book. So if you want to reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn or, you know, honestly, I 
tell people you feel free to email me, grace at menlovc.com. I'm more than happy to help be a sounding board. I know, um, you know, the entire partnership is that way. Thank you so much.